Welcome back to Unprecedented Scenes on this podcast as we deliver the second half of our first ever two-part episode with novelist Lee Stein. So if you haven't listened to the first part of this interview, you might want to stop the podcast right now and go back in the RSS feed to the previous episode and listen to that interview. Because I think you, you would, would you say, Joe, that you would need to listen to the first half before enjoying the second half? I think you would be wise to, yeah. Because you're going to need the American corner, aren't you, to, to contextualise. Otherwise, you're not going to know what a sidewalk is or, yeah, do that. Yeah, That's absolutely right. So before we get into this, who are you? I'm... Dr. Joe War, senior lecturer in 19th century literature. And I'm and Dr. host of the podcast. And I'm Dr. Adam James Smith, senior lecturer in 18th century literature. And together we co-host the podcast you listen to, which is called Smith and War Talk About Lee Stein's novel. Smith and War Talk About Satire. Yeah, where we discuss the form, function, future, and history of satire to a mass quantifiable impact for our research. Now that all of that is out of the way, we can finally get on with part two of the interview. But I think before we do, it's time, Joe for a very quick satire in the gradually easing lockdown roundup. Satire in the gradually easing lockdown roundup. Sit yourself down in a comfy chair. Pop your headphones in to go and get some fresh air. Restrictions are easing. Let's tell you what's up. It's Adam and Joe's easing lockdown roundup. How's the easing of lockdown roundup going? Well, not, not that much has happened in satirical news. The major satirical news headlines that have been coming up, because, you know, I've set up this alert to tell me whenever there's a headline that has satire in it, they are almost exclusively bound up with the return of spitting image. Um, right. So it's kind of like... We're, we're over that now, aren't we? We're well, we're, we wrote an article about that in October. So like yeah. we're, we're past that. But no, it, it, more and more things are emerging. So apparently BritBox executives have forced them to cut a scene where Donald Trump, Putin and Boris Johnson are all sword fighting with their penises. There's been a lot of questions over whether it's OK to have black puppets. And every day there's a new person saying it's time to let Spitting Image die. And there'll be someone else saying this is the perfect time for Spitting Image. And as, when you say sword fighting with their penises, I assume you mean they're using their penises to sword fight rather than that they are all having a sword fight and their opponents are their penises. No, that's correct. So you're right, right the first time. So apparently in the, in the sketch that got caught, Boris Johnson and Donald Trump have tiny penises and mm. they are trying to joust with the penises. The fence, not joust. And then mm-hmm. Putin comes in with an absolutely enormous penis and knocks them both over. Wow, so somebody, somebody had to sit in a, in a workshop and make latex penises of all those three men mm. for a scene yeah. that didn't even make it on the show. That's so sad. That is sad. And what they yeah. did with the penises. I, I don't know. I, mean, I, I gather that the penises may still appear, but there just won't be a scene where they're fighting Putin with their penises. Enough of Boris Johnson's latex penis. Let's get on to some good business, which is, uh, have you heard about a dating website for lockdown sceptics called Love in a Covid Climate? Yes, it's uh, Toby Young's tragically misconceived brainchild, I think, isn't it? It is, yeah. And it's been reported as a dating site, but I think that is slightly exaggerating quite how sophisticated it is. It's it's a forum on his blog, Lockdown Sceptics, where people can post comments if they want. Um, I heard it referred to as okay stupid. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think when it was a play on words. How does it work as a play on words? Because okay cupid is a dating website, isn't it? Ah, so I didn't get that until this exact moment. Ah, right. Okay. Well, now you can go around saying it and pretend it's your joke, can't you? Okay cupid. (laughs) Okay. Okay. And so. What happened when the when this forum went live? What happened when the forum went live? It was, I think, almost immediately taken over by people um, taking the piss, or we could say satirising the very conceit of the lockdown sceptics trying to find love with one another, and people what? were posting lots of lots of silly things, weren't they? They were. I mean, well, this is the issue, and I've heard Toby Young discussing this. Um, on the edition podcast there was a problem the moderators actually have had a problem distinguishing between the parody posts and the real posts what are some of the parody posts well so i've got one here painter seeks blonde posted by single orchard on the 9th of august 2020 artist and struggling writer x-forces 
WLTM, blonde, blue-eyed woman for relationships that will last a thousand years. Interests include public speaking, Volkswagen Beetles, and ancient Greek Olympics. Dislikes include Indiana Jones films. Slight anger issues, no time wasters, trade unionists, homosexuals, or communists. So that was a parody one or a real one, do you think? We don't know. We don't know. It has been taken down by moderators, which suggests that it, it may not have been real. And is there another one that we can read out? Yes, there is another one. And then we, could, we can have a think about that one. So, uh, Seeking Right Wing Lady. Hi, my name is Miles. I live in North London and looking for a patriotic lady for lasting friendship and to settle down. So not, not just lasting friendship. You have to, you have to settle down with Miles. I'm financially stable with my own house, car, and I'm mortgage-free. I am 47 years old and my interests are politics, Brexit, cars, holidays in the English countryside. My musical and film tastes are very wide, so there should be something we have in common. I am totally against all the masks, muzzle, nonsense, and feel that it is unnecessary scaremongering. Um, so you say, I'm getting a kind of a picture of Miles here, are you? Yeah, yeah. So, so far, so consistent. I also like watching animals make love, mainly dogs, foxes and wolves, but other animals as well. If this is not a thing you can get into, it is a deal breaker, I'm afraid. So do <laughs> you think Miles is real? I, I would love it if Miles is real. <laughs> Why? Well, do, you just, want I mean, do you want to have a lasting friendship with Miles? Oh, I just, if Miles enjoys watching foxes have sex and has put that in his dating ad. What a guy. What a guy. I mean, it's, there's just something so comic about the headline on that ad, Seeking Right-Wing Lady. And I can't, yeah. I think it, it sounds so partridge, doesn't it? I mean, I think there's two things. One, that it's quite, it's actually quite surprising to see right-wing being acknowledged so brazenly. You know, mm. that, 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 that's what I like and that's what I want. But it's, and it, in the real ads, there's so many, all of the ads, that no one talks about women. It's exclusively ladies, which is used as the describing word. Which <laughs> it is, is there is one to meet a lady, don't they? Just looking, looking for a laid back lady, which is just really bizarre that you don't, I don't encounter a lady being used like that in anything other than an ironic sense in my own circle. Oh, she's a nice lady. <laughs> so do you think Miles is a fake? I do, because I don't think you would put that in your kind of initial post, would you? No, I like the, the way that it, crescendos it really does doesn't it mm -hmm. the first few paragraphs is sort of wants a patriotic lady maybe i'm sure that some people do and then by paragraph three it's okay that's all that's all fine you like a lot of music and films you, you he's interested in brexit well that's 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 normal i suppose we all are and then the mask, <laughs> the masks muzzle thing is getting a bit bit more fruity isn't it and then at the end i like watching foxes have sex comedy mm. genius whoever wrote that I mean, do you, although, do you think it's bad to be trolling people who are trying to find love in, co in COVID-19? I mean, is it a bad faith to hoax in this manner? Um, I think the point at which it would become bad would be if somebody replied to it and said, I never thought that I'd find someone who feels the same way about watching foxes make love. Um, I would absolutely love to meet you. I know, I know some really nice scrubland near my house where there's some frisky foxes and I'll be there ready and waiting with a picnic blanket and maybe a, a bottle of champagne to share. I, I'm so excited genuinely because I never thought that I would be in a place where I'd meet somebody who who has just ticked all of my boxes. I'll be there mask free, thinking about Brexit, being right wing and getting off on watching those foxes. Mm. I'm going to sign off right now because I'm just so happy. I can't wait to meet you. Love a lady. Frisky Fox Scrubland is uh, the name of my next album. I think. Is it? What was your first album called? Uh, <laughs> it was called No Time Wasters, No Trade Unionists, <laughs> No Communists. Time Wasters and Trade Unionists would be, would be quite a good name, actually. Which one? Time Wasters and Trade Unionists, that'd be quite yeah. a good name. So what, mm. what are the tells in Single Orchards, Painter Seeks Blonde? post um okay let's have another look at that artist and struggling writer well this is kind of awful if they are real isn't it but let's pretend they're not let's let's pretend we know they're definitely not artist and struggling writer x-forces would like to meet blonde blue-eyed woman for a relationship that will last a thousand years i, ca I can see how i can see how that could be real and also um, he's tied it in quite nicely hasn't he because as well as public speaking and volkswagen beetles Single Orchid likes the ancient Greek Olympics. So that kind of reference to a long time frame beyond just your lefty socialist woke 
conceptions of, of time as being a kind of a, a short and insignificant thing. The ancient Greek Olympics eases us into a place where we're thinking about long history and dislikes Indiana Jones films. I suppose that's a little bit random, isn't it? So there hasn't been any Indiana Jones films for a while. So he, he obviously really, really dislikes them. If even at this point, they're his go-to, can't bear that. Like he hasn't said Marmite. He hasn't said a band that's out of the way. He hasn't even said socialists or COVID scaremongers or whatever. No, it's Indiana Jones films. So I feel like that's a bit of a clue because it's a bit random and surreal, isn't it? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a bit of a, a, bit of a clue. Well, I think when it becomes really clear is that there's a space, a new paragraph, and then um, he stated that he suffers slight anger issues. If they're that slight, you probably wouldn't be aware of them or mention them, but why would you put that? Yeah, and then the long list of things that upset him. Time wasters, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Trade unionists, again, an odd thing to specify at this this point in the relationship. Especially, especially um, as a painter. I mean, is there a trade union for being a painter? I don't, I honestly don't know. Is there a painter's trade union? What kind of painter? Yeah, I mean, you think someone who is against trade unions would be an employer? A captain of industry, wouldn't you? Or like some kind of some kind of capitalist businessman. But he's a painter, mm. he doesn't like trade unionists. But anyway, doesn't like um, homosexuals. No homosexuals, no. And then communists. What if, what if he's scared that a homosexual woman or a homosexual man will turn up for this date? I mean there's there's either way, it's clearly not gonna be what he's after. And he's he yeah. said that he wants a, a blue-eyed woman. A bit Nazi, isn't it? I was gonna say that's if you look at if you're looking for satirical dog whistles blue-eyed yeah. woman for a relationship last a thousand years does sound a bit nazi doesn't it yeah yeah but either way whether you're a woman or not you mustn't be homosexual even if you are blonde not going to do it for single orchid and don't be a communist so yeah. i think it's anger issues isn't it really yeah. that point to that being satire yeah did you have a go at writing one of these, Joe? Um, I didn't, because I, I wouldn't like to accidentally meet a lockdown sceptic, but uh, did you? I did, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay, go, go on, Let's, and we'll see at what point it's um, clearly a joke. I hope it is clearly a joke. Lady Albion seeking John Bull. Independent woman looking... And I, I'll just say that I put this together having read 20 or 30 of these on Sunday when I became addicted to reading oh. the actual ones. Um, so this is a homage and a collage in many ways. A bricolage, yeah. Lady Albion seeking a John Bull. Independent woman looking for a real man, not afraid to speak truth to power. I'm fed up with all of this global pandemic nonsense and it's time to get real and face real facts. Political correctness has gone mad and I think it's ridiculous that we're expected to wear masks now just so as not to offend all these woke snowflake millennials working in supermarkets these days. This virus has been blown out of all proportions and is only a threat to the weak. So those of us who are fit and healthy should do whatever we like. At the end of the day, it's my body, my choice. So I should be able to touch whoever I like. I'm holidaying on the beaches of Normandy presently, but shall be racing back imminently to my modest pile on the southeast coast to beat the quarantine. Message me. I, I'd go for it. <laughs> do you think that could get past the moderators? Um, he, ooh, I don't know. What was, what, was the bit, what was the bit that really alerted me to the, to the satire there? I think you've fucked up here haven't you because you've referred to yourself as a woman not a lady oh yeah independent lady looking i didn't want you lady twice but let's see how we could make this better i'm fed up with all this global pandemic nonsense it's time we get real and face facts i really like the shift in the grammar here it's time we get real i'm yeah look, that's nicely done political correctness has gone mad i think it's ridiculous we're expected to wear masks now just so we don't offend up i i think you you you're getting as many signifiers in as possible here, aren't you? Of, uh, I think I think the point at which it becomes obvious is at the end of the day, it's my body, my choice. So I should be able to touch whoever I like. That was that was probably the bit where the dubiousness of Lady Albion becomes <laughs> becomes apparent. And then yeah, I and I imagine whilst racing back imminently to her modest pile on the south coast and having to kind of undergo perhaps a certain level of stress and anxiety to do so to get across the channel to to the British Isles. I imagine Lady Albion wouldn't expend a moment to think about the the irony of of her thinking that that was a genuine hardship, whilst also deploring the attempts of refugees and asylum seekers to cross the channel for their own safety. Is, is, I mean, she's your character. Is is she thinking that? She is, yeah. And 
and also I thought there was, I mean, that, that line was sort of partly inspired by an actual post that I saw from someone who was saying how ridiculous it was, how ridiculous all the lockdown measures were, and that he would be racing back to beat the quarantine, um, mm. racing back to Brighton from his holiday in Spain. And right. uh, it just occurred to me that he was, you know, something of a super spreader. Mm. <laughs> so there's the refugee irony, but also the fact that Lady Albion, you know, it's not cool to race the quarantine. That really annoyed me, the way that it was reported on the news, where it's like, all oh, these travellers have managed to get back really, really fast from France. So, you know, so they don't have to quarantine for two weeks. No, you should have to quarantine for two weeks. It's not like, oh, well done, you saved yourself two weeks of having to protect yourself and society. Shut up, stay inside. Yeah. So Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think it's, it's interesting on the Lockdown Skeptics forum page that underneath the title it says, Stay, stay sceptical, control the hysteria, save lives. And now obviously that reminds me of stay alert, control the virus. But do you know what it also reminds me of? No. Well, stay sceptical. It's not a oh, million yeah. miles away oh, yeah. from our enough, is it? No, no, no. Shut up, sit up. Maybe we should have that as the banner on our website. Yeah. Stay, stay satirical, control the, control the what? Stay satirical, control the narrative. Save yourself. Stay satirical. Control the punchline. Stay satirical, control yourself. Never forget the stupidity that led to this. <laughs> what? Everything. <laughs> okay, perfect. Perfect, yeah. Well, so, so that was good. I, don't, I can't think of anything else particularly satirical that's going on at the moment, can you? No. Well, Lee Stein's novel's come out, hasn't it? It came out in July. That's the major satirical news, I think. I think that's the end of the roundup. Sit yourself down in a comfy chair Pop your headphones in to go and get some fresh air Restrictions are easing, let's tell you what's up It's Adam and Joe's easing lockdown roundup Well, listening back to that, I think it was incredibly funny but also a bit dated now, isn't it? Yeah, so what, we recorded that in... August. Late August. So back then, just to recap, cases weren't going up exponentially. Deaths were really quite low. Mm. We were we were leaving lockdown. In fact, I'd say we pretty much had left lockdown, hadn't we? And now, what's happening? Well, arguably, we're living in the aftermath of those heady August days, aren't we? Where everyone was eating out to help out and pretend, acting like everything was fine again, even though nothing had actually changed. And now we've got a situation where not only are the number of cases spiking exponentially. <laughs> We've just discovered that there are thousands of cases that were missed off an Excel spreadsheet. So it's even worse than it seemed when it seemed really, really bad. So it goes up exponentially and then they're like, oh yes, here's several thousand cases we forgot to say. So it went up even more than that. Deaths are going up. Yeah. Trump's had it apparently and got better apparently i don't know i don't know if i believe either or both or neither of those facts but um yeah so so we were leaving lockdown things were not good but they were different from now and so now it's satire in an age of satire in an age of curfew satire in an age of having to wear your mask when you walk to the toilet satire in an age of the rule of six satire in an age of two meters being arbitrarily defined by what activity you're doing it seems satire in an age of mask to mask satire <laughs> where you can't share a car but you can stand next to someone in a sweaty gym satire in an age where a family of two can't meet a family of three and sit in a park but a person can be in a room with 15 other persons talking without ventilation or windows that open. Satire in an age where people are really annoying say things like oh the virus knows when you're at school <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that is that is a lot of people's best satire now, isn't it? Yes. Saying, oh yes, because when it's a minute past ten, that's when the virus comes out. Bad, bad satire, bad. Yeah. The virus knows when I walk into the bar, but it doesn't <laughs> know when I waited for my drink. Satire in an age where James Bond has killed cinema. Yeah, that is sad about Picture House, isn't it? It is. So Picture House, Friends of the Podcast, where we introduced the film, um, where we introduced that film by Chris Morris last year, The Day Show Come. The, the Day After yeah. Tomorrow Never dies it's weird because i remember that film so clearly but uh, i can't remember what it was called day show or what happened it was called the day show come i can't remember what happened but uh, but yeah and, and also in satire news lots of things have happened since we hubristically observed that it had been quiet in the land of satire so i have seen some of upload which we tried to talk about earlier in the summer but we had to stop because we, we realized we couldn't say anything because none of us had seen it 
That's right, upload from the same writer as Space Force, which I think at the time neither of us had seen, but we were yeah. aware of. And now we've seen some of each, haven't we? Satire in an age of, and this is something I do want to talk about, Alan Partridge's own podcast from the Oast House, which I think we've both been enjoying over recent weeks, haven't we? Really want to talk about that podcast because he says a lot of funny things about podcasts and seems to be satirising the general uh, idea of a podcast. And also because I found there was a very relatable moment, which I want to talk about at much more length and with much more kind of much more of an axe to grind because like alan partridge i also had the experience of encountering an animal in the wild and um having some dialogue on twitter about what i ought to be doing or ought to have done about this animal so i want to um i want to really explore that but the thing is we haven't got time today have we no, we haven't. I mean, so I think we should do a whole episode where we do a satire roundup, another satire roundup episode where we reflect on everything that happened in September yeah. and October, because there's lots of things that happen in the world of satire, like Alan Partridge, like your... South very, Park. Like South Park. South Park have released a one-hour pandemic special, which has been garnering all sorts of praise from, from every quarter. So we need to talk about that. Spitting Image is back now. It's actually back on BritBox. We're, we're pretty much over talking about the idea of Spitting Image, but I think there's some interesting yeah. things about the reception to it and the conversations that have arisen over what is and isn't appropriate targets for satire. We should record that podcast, but I don't think that we should do it in a room together. I think we should continue as we are in our own respective residences because although on campus, if you're on campus, the virus knows not to get you. <laughs> You're yeah. not, you're, the virus leaves you alone on campus. But I am not sure what the ruling is about if the virus knows whether to leave you alone or not if you're recording a podcast. That's I think if I was teaching you a seminar, mm. that would be okay. Yeah, if you were sat in a socially distant classroom two metres away from me, but well, approximately two metres away from me, but staring directly at me, that would be yeah. safer than if you and I were to sit together to record the podcast because the virus knows when it's- The virus knows, yeah. You know what, COVID, to be fair, COVID fucking hates podcasts, so yeah. be careful. To be fair though, I, uh, I wouldn't want to record this wearing a mask or a visor. No, no, that's true, that's true. And uh, Why does the virus hate podcasts? Well I, well, I just don't know, I'm just angry. I'm just, just describing oh. it just describing to the, the virus emotions that I, that I can't deal with. I mean, that's one of the good things about COVID, isn't it? Is that if there's lots of inconveniences or problems in your life that aren't necessarily virus related, you can still blame them on the virus. What sort of things? Uh, well, you know, if your seminars are, are dry and boring, you can be like, <laughs> oh, online teaching, that's not really working, is it? Or whatever. So uh, Yeah, or if your seminars are dry and boring, you can say face-to-face teaching doesn't work. It's exactly, horrible. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, or yeah. if you work in a sector that's massive, that, that has been hemorrhaging money for years due to poor investment decisions, you can be like, oh, the virus, is, the virus is, has killed us. Well, no, the virus has laid bare problems that were already there, my friend. But, uh, but I digress. I think we should get back to the past and talk to Lee Stein. Yeah, God knows that was better. Let's do that. See you back in the past. See you back in the past. Come on, Marty. Excellent. So, shall we finally get on with the show and finish listening to this wonderful interview with Lee Stein? You said that you were really nervous about this book coming out in a pandemic, but in many ways, like the things that you're addressing in this novel have been so amplified, haven't they? Because this, so this book appeared just before the Black Lives Matter movement restarted, on the brink of cancel culture. And amazingly, I, I had a really uncanny moment reading the book. I want, towards the end, they have a Zoom meeting, which is basically my life now. It's just Zoom meetings. And I had to remind them that that wasn't normal in 2017 to live your life entirely on Zoom. It, it is. It's strange when you come across Zoom in a pre-COVID situation. <laughs> yeah. So in fact, I ended up being very lucky <laughs> about the timing of my book coming out. I had no idea, you know, it, this moment that it's coming out reminds me a lot of the moment when I wrote it in 2017, because every day there's like a new nightmare. Like you think you've adjusted to the current nightmare and then there's something even more horrible that happened. The New York, the front page of the New York Times published the names of the dead on Memorial Day. I think it was up to 100,000 in Memorial Day. And that was front page news. And we all kind of paused for a second to remember these, these dead that, that we can't even have funerals for them. And then that was the day that George Floyd was murdered. And so suddenly we were talking about that and, and both our horrors. The way that we're living all online now, the way that we feel pain and outrage and like there isn't more that we can do, that's all very much the set 
setting of my novel. And I should also add that the reason my novel is set in about a few weeks time in early 2017 is because the Trump administration was so insane. I didn't know what was going to happen. Like, is he going to get impeached? Is he going to die? Like, Ivanka is going to become our president. I don't know. So I thought I'm going to set it in a very small time window because I know what happened during those few weeks. And I will always know what happened during those few weeks. So I, I couldn't have written a novel that spanned months or years because it, it felt so unknown. Well, that was definitely the right call, wasn't it? Everything <laughs> <laughs> that's happened since, yeah. That was a doubly smart move. Struck at the start, Lee, when you said you weren't sure, you like you didn't set out necessarily to write a satirical novel. When did you realise that you were writing a satirical novel? And to what extent do you think this novel does things that you couldn't do outside of fiction? So I'll tell you that my my idea for this originally was that I was reading the business section of the paper and listening to entrepreneurial podcasts. And I noticed that all these like Silicon Valley tech bros kept going on digital detoxes. It's like the higher up you were in the echelons of tech culture, like the more you needed to get away from it. And I thought that was really funny, like Jack Dorsey from Twitter going on a silent meditation retreat in Myanmar. So I had the idea to kind of do that to a female tech founder and kind of marry that to the yellow wallpaper, which is that novella about, you know, a woman being sent away for a Victorian rest cure where she's told to do nothing. And so she starts going insane and like talking to the wallpaper because there's so little to do. So that was my initial idea. And that's why I, you know, so much of the beginning of the book is Marin in this country house. And that was even more part of the beginning of the book before I kind of brought in the other characters' voices sooner. It was just like Marin in the woods for many pages and there was the bird and all that stuff. I don't know exactly the moment when I realized it was a satire, but while I was working on it, it did feel like a release valve for me to make jokes. So I was coming off of this feminist organizing experience that had been marred by infighting and controversy. And the other thing about woke culture, I think, is it's so humorless. You aren't really allowed to make jokes. If you make a joke, you might offend somebody. So it's better to make no jokes. And so writing this book was such a, a relief valve for me to, to make fun of certain extreme belief systems. And at some point, my agent said, have you read American Psycho? And I said, no, I'm a good feminist, because this is like one of those books that I thought was like forbidden, a forbidden text. I knew it had been canceled. Uh, I knew that it was misogynistic. So I had never read this book. And then I started reading this book. And it's hilarious, because it's so inappropriate. It's, he makes fun of everything, the AIDS epidemic, nothing is off limits. And so that felt really liberating to me, because I thought like, what would be my version of that? Like, what would I make fun of if I could do it in a fictional uh, disguise? Because I think I'm not, my personality, I'm not a provocateur. I don't seek out controversy. I'm a people pleaser. I'm a quote unquote nice girl, you know, that kind of thing. So fiction is where I can really be inappropriate. And I feel like I have permission to, to do that. So that feels very liberating to me as a writer. And I, I'm not naturally good at kind of argument-driven nonfiction writing. That doesn't feel comfortable for me. I'm much more comfortable kind of eavesdropping, mimicking, kind of pastiche, putting things together. Um, that kind of instinctive brain instead of the logical part of your brain feels more comfortable to me. That's funny. When I read it, there's, there's one chapter in particular where Devin gets home and is doing her routine, her beautifying routine and describing all the products and stuff. And I remember when I read that, it reminded I just thought, suddenly I feel like I'm reading American Psycho just for... A couple of pages. Absolutely, because he has all the, he has a multi-step Clinique regimen. That's yeah. hilarious. I've been wondering if American Psycho, how that would go down if it came out now. I mean, I, I want to be like, oh, I bet people would tear it down and, and you know complain. I know a lot of work people who think it's great though. I was just going to say, but then it's one of those contradictions, isn't it? So, and I'm sure that I hope they wouldn't mind me saying, but we've got a lot of students who absolutely deify that book. Hopefully yeah, before I read it, if you would ask me to describe what that book was before I read it, I think I would have said like, oh, it like glorifies rape and murder of women. Like that was my impression of what that book was. But it's really, it's satirizing excess. It's satirizing this, you know, the excess of the 80s and Wall Street culture, which I think I'm doing now with the wellness industry. But it's so funny to me too, how like the Patrick Bateman character, like he doesn't do anything at work. He has a secretary and he doesn't do anything all day long, which is hilarious. I just would like to go back to some of the, um, just before we started talking about American Psycho as well, when you were saying that it was just a relief to be able to be, to be funny and to make jokes and to poke fun at things in such an uncertain time. And so it sounds like writing this in some ways was not so much you trying to, you writing it in the hope that the Devons and Marins of this world would read it and change their ways or that anybody was going to 
take a long, hard look at themselves in the mirror and genuinely do better. It sounds like it was mostly cathartic and that it was fun and enjoyable to write and to do all the things you were talking about, the pastiche and mockery. And was this more of a joy for you to write than written in the hopes that somebody might change? (laughs) It was definitely a pleasure to write. I think I also had the sensation as I was writing it of being the little boy in the Emperor Has No Clothes story where I feel like everyone was saying that the Emperor was dressed and I was the only one saying, no, he's not. So my perception of hypocrisy of of what was happening online that I felt like I couldn't, I didn't want to say anything publicly, but I felt like I could channel that into my writing. And then in the early days when the book was coming out, I remember one review of the book said that I'm making fun, actually two reviews of the book said I was making fun of faux wokeness. And I thought, "Mm, (laughs) yes and no. I mean, I guess they could mean like girl boss feminism is a kind of faux wokeness, but, and and I complained to a friend of mine and she said, some people are going to think your book is a window and they aren't going to know that it's a mirror. And so I think I was more worried that some of the objects of my book would get mad at me, but I didn't realize that they aren't even going to realize it's them. They don't even recognize themselves. So I didn't have to worry about <laughs> oh, that. What's, what's that quotation, satire is a mirror in which people don't recognize themselves or something yeah. like that? Yeah, Jonathan Swift says something like, satire holds up a mirror to the world, but the targets can never see themselves or something like that. So there you go. Yeah, yeah that sounds like exactly that, that dynamic. So then has nobody got across then? People generally fail to take the offence that, that you feared they might. Yeah, I and I think <laughs> it's, it's almost like they would have more to lose by identifying themselves as the target, right? Like they would then have to be ridiculous. They would have to come out as being ridiculous. So no one wants to do that. Mm. Um, so it's more just that I can kind of infer from some of the chatter online, you know, who's getting which part of the satire. But I think that's kind of exciting, right? That my book can reach people on different levels. That's exciting for me as a writer, that, that people are coming to it for different reasons. It's extraordinary. I mean, I, I was, I was, I was going to say, how, how have you got away with this? Arrest that woman. Yeah, it's just, it's so specific and it really gets down to the, into the nitty gritty of what's happening and why it's happening. And I I suppose one of the reasons why you may have gotten away with it is like, no one's a cartoonish villain, are they? I mean, I I didn't care for Evan at all, but generally speaking, like you get to the end of the book and you don't necessarily want anyone. I was sad for everyone at the end of the book. And and it's funny as well, because I was thinking, so we, in our reading group that I mentioned earlier, we just read... Evelyn Wars Scoop before we read this, which- I'm not uh, familiar with that book. Well, it's an early 20th century satire on newspaper media. And actually, you know the Daily Beast, the website takes its name from the newspaper in the fictional book Scoop. And there's loads of interesting parallels between yourself, I think, and where Evelyn Wars was in that position because he was, he'd written for the Daily Mail newspaper and then left and then wrote this satire of this fictional newspaper drawing on his own experiences. And there's a similar thing where, although it's, it is cartoonish and absurd compared to yours, like, but there are moments where you can just tell that really happened. Like you can just, that's so specific, you know that he's critiquing a real person or, I won't recommend this book wholeheartedly because it's really, <laughs> really problematic <laughs> because he gets sent to, to report a story in, in an fictional African country and there's really dodgy stuff in terms of race. The joke is that there's absolutely nothing happening in this country, but all these reporters... But it's Africa. Yeah, and someone's reported that there is, which means that all the reporters have to go there and then basically they're falling over themselves to invent a story and everyone back in in the UK is just thinks all this crazy stuff is happening, but nothing is happening. So it's a book about nothing happening in as a media event, basically. Your book, the characters aren't cartoonish, are they? Like they're, they're realistic characters, I think, in these situations which should be cartoonish and caricaturish and absurd, but also have depressingly real world referent. That, that the Ten Commandments probably exists somewhere. I've certainly seen signs to that effect. So yeah. I wonder if people aren't offended by it necessarily because all the characters are kind of victims, not in a performative way, but they're falling over themselves to appear as victims, but they are victims of this kind of woke capitalism and that's kind mm, of- That's interesting. Another thing you said, Adam, just made me think, like, to answer how did I get away with this, I lived it. I was running an online community for women that was ostensibly feminist, and I watched women destroy each other in the name of being good feminists. So I think that's another reason I can get away with it. I'm not someone, you know, I'm not a reporter dropping into the story. Like, I I, I actually have first-person experience um, doing this. 
and the caricature, the character question, another thing in the book that another interviewer was shocked to find out was real is this survey that Marin event invents to send the influencers to divulge the most horrific things that's ever happened to them. So like, have you been raped? Have your parents died? Have you had a heroin addiction? That is real. That is something that Bustle, which is a women's media website, sent to freelancers because there has been this pro proliferation of personal essays and to replace journalism. So now we want to hear from everyone we don't want to hear from journalists telling the story of marginalized groups. We want to hear people from those marginalized groups telling their stories in their own words. And so Bustle will pay you like $35, you know, to talk about the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to you. There was a former employee of Bustle who posted about my book on Instagram and she was like, I'm having a nervous breakdown reading this book. And I DM'd her and I was like, no, it's like, it's based in part on Bustle. Like you aren't imagining it, you know, like I observed this. I observed what was happening in women's media and that's where a lot of this content stuff comes from. There's another extra layer of cynicism I think about it in self-care though isn't there because it's not just that these women are sharing their stories because they think sharing their stories is a good thing to do or because it will be enlightening. They they kind of have them there ready in case they need them to, to defend against something as innocuous as like a drop-off in followers or likes or something as in Marin's case quite serious where she needs to really call some credibility back in with her, with her story. So that kind of cynical knowing use of these, these stories is, is that an exaggeration as well? Or is that also something that genuinely happens? So, you know, the, um, there's like a reality TV show called The Biggest Loser. I don't think it exists anymore, but it was, it was you know, people losing weight competitively. Yeah. So I wrote a sticky note on my desk as I was working on the book and then said The Biggest Victim. Because I think often in these internet um, disputes, the biggest victim wins. So if you're in trouble for something, a, a way to uh, gain sympathy is to reveal something that's been done to you. I see this move deployed online over and over again at the same time that I see this conversation about how powerless victims are. But this is actually a power move that you can, mm -hmm. that you can deploy to your advantage when you're at the bottom of a pylon. And I think the whole scheme is broken. I don't want to see anyone at the bottom of a pylon. I don't think that Twitter is a court of law. I don't think that Twitter should get to decide who's, who's guilty and who's innocent. I don't think that's fair. But somehow we've landed here and there's an incentive to be a big, bigger victim than someone else. Again, it's, it's a really kind of dystopian image, isn't it, of existence as a constant bid to climb up out from under the pylon with a story of victimhood and hope that this story of victimhood is one of the ones that takes that people will accept and will respond positively to, but equally knowing that the story might crash you lower down than you even were before. It's a fascinating strategy because it can misfire or it can, can completely work, can't it? Yeah, and I, I don't think it's a coincidence that this is coinciding with this conversation about privilege. It's a dynamic that can only ever lead to most people being quite irreconcilably miserable, isn't it? If on the one hand the model is buy stuff, acquire money, do well, that's the way to be happy. On the other hand, once you've got the stuff and the nice house and the life, you need to be constantly on your guard against accusations of privilege and reminding everybody where, you're, where those areas in your life where you don't have privilege. How you were an underdog and how you overcame. It's just never ending, isn't it? There's no way for anyone to be happy ever. Mm. And all that chat about privilege, the one thing, the one group that gets erased is those that don't have privilege, which is often, oftentimes it's an economic, the word privilege is usually tied to economic causes, isn't it? So the, the people who don't have any money, we never hear from them. I keep, yeah, I keep wondering when we're going to have the conversation about class. We've had the conversation about race, we're having the conversation about gender. When are we going to have the conversation about class? Because the, the corporations running America do not want us to have the conversation about class. Yeah, which is probably why we're not, isn't it? Very much the same in the UK, I think, as well. A really similar dynamic around not talking about class, but talking about other forms of identity. You know, do better by spending your money here rather than there. There's no way to make class something you spend money on. That's so interesting. Which kind of takes us back to Marin in, in some ways, doesn't it? Because her, her anxieties throughout are around, well, most obviously money and also kind of sense that she's from a different social class than that which she's trying to fit into. Yeah, I, I was just thinking, is there a way to spend money? I, I think that if you give to charity and then you announce it on social media for points, that's a way to do it. That's like kind of a virtue signal spend. Yeah, but... 
But whereas, you know, I source my groceries from a working class owned business, it just doesn't have the same kind of clout. It's not cool or anything. Even though in most cases it's probably true. I just want to talk about Evan. And the thing that really struck me about that whole final section of the book is how ambiguous it is in terms obviously it remains ambiguous about what happened and about the legitimacy of the accusations but also i found it really ambiguous as a reader that you didn't give us any steer at all of what to think about it these are the accusations this is devin's experience from her own internal monologue this is how it all plays out i just wondered i mean and i thought that was interesting and admirable but i just wondered if you if i could explain the true part no i'm just kidding <laughs> um, did he do it? no <laughs> um, this is so interesting because I, you know, when I wrote the book, my fantasy was that people would get together in book clubs and talk about the ending. That's what I wanted to happen. And I thought women could argue about it because I had readers for early drafts and one reader said, like, poor Devin, she was the victim of Evan and like Marin, you know, told the world that. So she was on the side of Devin was victimized and Evan needs to be held to account. And then I had other readers say like, Marin totally abused her power and abused Devin by outing her as a victim. So I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So I, I knew that it was ambiguous and that was exciting to me because I thought people could talk about it. But one of the questions I was thinking about is who determines who is a victim? Who gets to say that? And in 20, my, this is my fourth book. My previous book was a memoir in 2016 about an abusive relationship I was in in my early 20s. And I tried to write a book that was nuanced and uh, wrestled with why I was drawn to this charismatic, troubled person over and over again, even though uh, people around me wanted me to get out of this relationship. And when it came time to promote the book, it got flattened into these labels of victim, survivor that were really uncomfortable for me because I thought the book was more complex than that. And I was told to work on my brand and I would be a, a survivor of domestic violence in my brand. And I thought, I don't want to be known as this. I want to be known as a writer. This is one of many books that I intend to write in my life. And so that uncomfortable feeling with other people assigning labels to me, that's a lot where Devin comes from. So I wanted her to be, she's confused about what she's in and I didn't want to assign her a label. So if it's murky about what she's in, then that's that, then I succeeded, I think, in my intent because I, I want people to have this conversation. I think it's similar to the conversation um, we all had when this article came out about Aziz Ansari's bad date. Um, the millennials I talked to said, you know, the date had been violated. The Gen Xers I talked to said, why didn't she hail a cab and get out of there? So this Me Too conversation that is specifically about when and at what points do women have agency and when are they being taken advantage of, I would actually like to have that conversation instead of, you know, all men are abusers and all women are victims, that kind of simplification that I think is false. Well, I think that that explains why we weren't sure what we thought, doesn't it? That it is infinitely more complicated than that in the novel. I as Adam says, I, I at the end was it wasn't sure quite what I what I thought about it. And I'd add one more thing. Another thing that really inspired my thinking is during the Me Too movement, I kept noticing that the burden was on women to somehow solve sexual harassment and sexual assault. Yeah. It was all I talked about with my female friends, and I got frustrated because I thought, are men having these conversations about their role? And so with the plot twist at the end of the book, it's really Devin and Marin who are in the hot seat for Evan's behavior. And they have to somehow problem solve what message they're gonna put out to their community, what, what are they gonna make Evan say, but they aren't the ones that committed misconduct against anyone. So I think that unfairness is also what I'm pointing to. Absolutely, they, they spend more time agonizing about it and asking one another to justify what they've done about it than anyone spends speaking to Evan or Evan spends speaking to anyone about, which is fascinating in itself, isn't it? And, and very telling, I think. This has been so, you guys are such interesting conversation partners. Thank you so much, this is-, this is I want to hear how your, how your book club goes as well. Talk about the ending with them. I think that was going to be divisive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys. Bye. 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 Well, I really enjoyed talking to Lee Stein, did you? I really did. Yeah, absolutely delightful company.
I tell you what, that's that's our first interview that we've done with someone who isn't you or I on Zoom in the pandemic. Yeah. And wasn't it interesting how easy it was to forget that we weren't all just friends hanging out in a Zoom meeting? Yeah, because when we used to do interviews on Zoom, we never used to put the camera on, did we? But I suppose we've learned through using Zoom and Teams and so on that it's really quite important to be able to see people, otherwise you just keep interrupting them and it's even more stilted than it has to be. I was really sad when we got to the end of the call because I felt like we were friends with Lee and I was sad that we weren't going to see her again. We might see her again. And if people enjoyed listening to Lee Stein and hearing about her book Self Care, you can buy Self Care from Penguin, also from many reputable ethical booksellers and disreputable unethical booksellers, I suppose. You can get it on Amazon, you can get it anywhere. Just search for self-care by Lee Stein. And if you'd like to follow Lee Stein, who's been very active recently, talking to all sorts of people on all sorts of podcasts and all sorts of interesting conversations, you can follow her on Twitter at RhymesWithLee. But mainly this would be the podcast to prioritise, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, prioritise this podcast because we talked about the very art of her writing didn't we we talked about the novel itself and and everything that went into it but you you can hear about different kinds of conversations on other podcasts but this is the main one yeah yeah because i mean it's always going to be it's always going to be lee who is an excellent guest and interviewee but you got to think you got you got to think about the what what comes with that haven't you well, Lee would agree that she said in our in in the interview that, that we were we, we were very wonderful and interesting conversationalists so uh, yeah and do you know what um i've been meaning to say actually and perhaps we could um just include this on this one is it's perhaps important to note that none of our guests on the podcast receive anything at all for their time and um generosity in talking to us so everyone you ever hear talking to us is just given freely of their time and um, and has been amazing so yeah we we really appreciate that don't we absolutely yeah and so the next episode is going to be our leave, leaving slash re-entering lockdown satire roundup yes and then do we want to trail what we've got coming after that i think we should because because it's extraordinary isn't it so yes. tell people what we're working on in the background working on well, we're editing it, aren't we? We're editing it and we're preparing oh, it. Okay. It's cooking. It's going to be... It's going to oven be, ready. It's going to be... It's on its yeah. way to be an oven ready. We'll be doing an oven ready. So our next episode is going to be a return to a conversation with a guest who we first talked to right at the beginning of season uh, two of the podcast, which was... Was that about five years ago now? It was. It was actually... So the last time we spoke to this guest was October 2019. So it's a full year ago. Uh, <laughs> so the concept of seasons in our podcast is quite... quite Quite loosely applied isn't it we just do it and do it and do it and then at some point we'll pause I mean I'm sure some listeners have, have wondered about this and why season two is so long I seem to looking down at the rest of the world going why am yeah. I so big it's because <laughs> it should have, season two should have wrapped in April but then yeah that happened didn't it and we didn't want to so we were for a while we 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 didn't want to release the Sharon Lockyer interview whilst all this stuff was happening so we focused on that. Then when we did re-release Sharon Lockyer, various things have happened. But I think this this guest that we're trailing now, this is going to be the finale of season two, which is essentially two seasons in length, really, isn't it? Yeah, because very obviously what we should have done if we didn't know what was coming would be wrap it up after Fairfax House, yeah. release three summer specials as and when we felt like, then start season three now with Lee Stein and then our next guest but we didn't do that we just we just aimlessly floated through summer recording stuff when we when we wanted and as a result this season is ridiculously long <laughs> however and we've not even released everything from this season have we like there's things <laughs> that we recorded that we've that we've not released so um so it's a very long season if listeners have any views about the numbering of seasons or episodes whether you're bothered that season two is really big whether you think we should wreck on the numbers you know, feel free to send us an email at more at gmail.com and I may read them. But yeah, so what is this? Maybe we'll do a Patreon-only episode about that. We should. We should. Adam, Smith & War talk about the numbering of Smith & War talk about satire. Yeah. Who's this guest that we've got coming on then? The guest is the guest that is called Andrew Doyle. Andrew Doyle, who has the rare honour of, I think, being name-checked in every single episode by a different guest. Yeah. Everyone has talked about Andrew Doyle. His first interview caused a stir didn't it we've had lots of lots of comments and responses lots of listens so we're inviting him back to talk about satire in the culture war and his new book yeah well it, it was new when we spoke to him yes his book which, yeah. you'll be, which you'll still be able to buy in time for christmas in theory if the episode gets out in time but it's a, that's, a, that's a jumbo episode to look forward to about satire in the culture war but before then a satire roundup but right now this episode with lee stein is coming to a close just before we go have you got any big or little bits of news joe 
Uh, big or little bits of news? Not, not ones that I think anyone would be interested in, no. Well, I, I just wanted to flag that there was an interview recently conducted by Five Media, which was released in an article called Welcome to the Land Beyond Satire, which included an interview about satire with David Schneider and also co-host of this podcast, Dr. Joe Wall. Yes, yes, that's true. We should make it clear that I didn't get to speak to or be anywhere near David Schneider, but my name is near to his in that interview, which was really fun to do. And um, yeah, you can, we, we could link to that article in the show notes, couldn't we? Can, we can indeed. And it's a very good yeah. interview. I mean, you did a wonderful job. I, I'm glad that you didn't include me. That's absolutely fine. But <laughs> that, is, that is the one time, isn't it, where uh, it was me that got approached and we have no way of knowing why, but, but it, um, never is. It, it was nice to be on the other side of that for. No, I do mean that, and I do mean I do, and I, you do. It's you do a really, you give a really good interview. It's wonderful. All of our listeners should read that. So I think that's the end. If readers want to, readers, if listeners want to, let us know that they're aware of the podcast. What should they do, Joe? Um, sign up to the Patreon. <laughs> we don't, we don't have a Patreon, listeners. We don't have Patreon. We don't have sponsorship, but we. It, until we get a you know what they could do though they could yeah. they could rate us on apple podcast couldn't they yeah, they can and, and they could subscribe which we've never ever indicated they should do but they clearly should you should subscribe and you can leave us a review and you can let us know by hitting us up in socials on our twitter at social media yes and also you can email us my email is j.war at email.co.uk that's not right. So yeah, so yeah, send us a tweet at so, <laughs> social media. Send us a tweet at satire no more or follow us on Instagram at talkaboutsatire or drop us an email at satire no more at gmail.com. Let us know you're aware. <laughs> Thanks so much, listeners. I mean, this has been a really weird time, hasn't it, Joe? And yes. I mean the last You're talking like it's over. Well, no, it continues to be a really weird time. And I do feel like our listeners sustain, they sustain me. I can't speak for you. But no, they don't sustain me. Knowing that people listen and let us know that they're aware keeps me going. <laughs> it is, it's a nice little bit, isn't it? When, uh, when you make it and you put it out there and then you can see that real people or what we assume to be real people have actually listened to it. I would, I would recommend that as a mood boost. Thank you to all, all 37 of you who've boosted on <laughs> All 37 of you. Many of which are abroad. Goodbye, everyone. Stay Goodbye, everyone. Sit up. What? Sit up. <laughs> Stay two metres apart. Shut up. Because of the aerosols. And eat. But And you can take your mask off to do that, but then put it back on immediately afterwards. My satire. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye.